The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Professor Charles Telfer. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. I invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In this faculty series, we've been considering this letter dealing with this very difficult congregation. You can just feel the stress and the tension between the apostle and these Corinthian believers who are so tough to love. Our focus this morning will be on verses 15 through 22, and particularly on verses 18 through 22 of this first chapter. But I'd like to begin the reading from the beginning. He begins on a word of grace, and despite all the ups and downs of this letter, he ends with that wonderful benediction of grace at the very end of 2 Corinthians that we use so often in our services. Hear then God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that, by, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you any other thing than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was so sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, 
our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I also call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Thus far, the reading in God's holy word. May his blessing be on its reading and on our reflections from it. Amen. Brothers and sisters, well loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, the tempest in a teapot here is the change to Paul's plans, his travel plans that he has made. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about visiting Corinth by first going to Macedonia, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 8. And on our passage, Paul said that he wrote to them saying that he would go to Macedonia through Achaia, through southern Greece, and then he would come back to them. If you look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, it's, it says that he, de- he delays uh, coming to Macedonia because it would be a painful uh, and difficult visit, and he wanted to spare them uh, the difficulties of that, uh, of that visit. Paul had, uh, had his hands full with plenty of difficulties and uh, conflicts with the Corinthian Christians. After our devotional this morning, uh, we are invited to have a reception for Dr. Godfrey's ministry, and I'm sure thinking back on all these many years of ministry, Dr. Godfrey could share with us that he's had certain times, certain meetings, I'm sure that he would have preferred not to have and would have rather passed over rather than having those necessary conflicts, which are unfortunately part of each of our lives and every ministry. But as modest as these uh, changes of plan seem to be, the anti-Paul group in Corinth has taken them up and has used them to slander the apostle as a slimy liar of some sort. When he talks about vacillating in 17, this is a serious charge against Paul's reputation. He's fickle. He says one thing and he does another. He's a prevaricator. It's possible that they're using Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 37, when Jesus says, let your yes be yes. Well, Paul doesn't do that. It's clear to see. They're uh, running him down and they're trying to ruin his reputation. The purpose of our passage that we're considering here in uh, chapter one this morning is obviously to refute that claim. He is defending himself and the way he puts the question in verse 17 suggests a negative answer as one summarized it this way. Do I follow mere whims that there should be in my life a perpetual variation, a decision today, an alteration tomorrow, refusing following on consent? Of course not. And I think that this text is useful to us as we think about how we make our plans, certainly as we think about our reputations. Reputation is particularly important for us as church workers, particularly important for us as pastors, not for our egos, but if we lose our reputation, we lose our point of entry with people. 
So it's important to protect our reputation. But the importance that Paul derives from this discussion, he doesn't just uh, make a, a point about his reputation. He goes so much farther. In typical fashion, Paul takes this particular uh, conflict, the particular issue, and he runs with it in a glorious way. It seems like he makes almost an off-the-cuff comment, but it opens up for us the whole structure of his thought and the way he thinks about uh, scriptural teaching as a whole. So I'd like for you to follow with me uh, what Paul is saying here under two particular headings. The first is that God fulfills his promises in Christ and that secondly, God establishes you in... If you look at verse 20, you can see very clearly God fulfills his promises in Christ where it says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Paul, when he really wants to make a point, and he does so twice in the reading that we have here, he takes an oath. He swears. Is it wrong for you to swear? No, it's not wrong when there's uh, serious matters at stake to use the name of God to make an affirmation. He says in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He draws their attention from him as the messenger back to the sender, the one who is the source of the message. Do you think that God would use a faithless messenger to deliver his message to you? If you call into question my stability, are you not really calling into question uh, the message that you received at my mouth? He says, and you'll notice that there's three witnesses. He says, it was I, but it was also Timothy, and it was also Silvanus, three necessary uh, people to testify in a trial. We are all saying the same thing, and that is that the yes of God has come into permanent effect in this one person, this Lord Jesus Christ, and he uses the full title for uh, the Lord Jesus here. If you consider Jesus, his life is no, he is no, he is no prevaricator, he is no vacillator. His whole life is one yes, one consistent whole. And if I have been faithful in this most important task, I and my colleagues with me, to give you the gospel, how can it be that I would prove unfaithful to you in this smaller task? No, it is, it is that I am making my plans for your sake. Look at verse 15. He says there, I intended to give you a double benefit. My, I'm, giving, I'm, I'm guiding my plans because, I, as he says in chapter 2, I want to spare you this particular journey. Everything that I do is with your welfare in mind. And so Paul mentions Christ in 19, and then he, his thoughts rise up in that typical Pauline fashion even further in 20 and following, as he says that all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is, this is Paul here is taken away by his thoughts of Christ, and he makes this simple comment which gives us an insight into the way that he looks at the whole of history. For Paul, God has made a covenant of grace with the fathers, particularly with Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. It's with, these, it's with these patriarchs in particular that God has announced unilateral blessings. And when he says that he would give them a land, when he says that he would give them offspring, these are promises, of their, it's promises for their welfare. That God would see them safely through the, the pilgrimage of this life and he would give them an everlastingly new heavens and earth that they could enjoy in unending felicity forever and forever, forever. He says in Romans 15, verse eight, I say that Jesus Christ has become a, the servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. He says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse two, the he speaks about these promises as the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And so we see that these, these affirmations given to Abraham, they were pictures of a rescue plan that was conceived even before time began. We see the mention in our text here of all three persons of the Trinity. And we can reverently, we can uh, in a, with a sense of awe affirm that within the Godhead himself, that he has, he has put together a, a rescue and renewal plan. We can call this a pactum salutis. We can call this a, 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 a covenant of redemption. But it was beyond time when he made this plan and he promised it very clearly to uh, Abraham and to his descendants. And so for Paul, as he thinks back on 2,000 years of Jewish history, he's struck with just what a wonderful thing it is to be a Jew. To be a Jew is an extraordinary thing. Because for 2,000 years, it was almost only to the Jews, as he says in Romans 9, verse 4, that it was to the Israelites that were promised the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises to the Jews. What a wonderful thing to be a Jew. And he goes on and he focuses he shows us that the focus of all these promises was on one particular descendant, as he says in Galatians 3, 16. He says, to Abraham and to his seed were these promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of to many, but as of one, and to your seed. And so here for Paul, all these promises that God makes throughout the Old Testament find their focus and their realization in this one person, in this Christ. <clears throat> so for Paul, we can, he sees the whole Old Testament tapestry as focused on him. From the very beginning, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15, from that very beginning where though he would suffer by having his heel pierced, that the seed would come who would, who would, who would break the, the ungodly covenant between our first forebears, Adam and Eve. He would break that covenant with the powers of evil, set us free through, um, through crushing the very head of the serpent. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18 that in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All the promises of God are in him, yes, and are in him, amen. Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And if there was ever a reason to study Hebrew, this is the reason. 
all these texts. For us as Christians, all these texts point to this fulfillment in this, the glorious person and the glorious work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But not only has God fulfilled his promises in Christ in history, but God has established us in Christ. Paul draws our attention to himself in order to draw us, his readers, with him to see that these things are not just uh, past history, but these are a description of who we are now in Christ. Look at verse 21. He says there that he establishes us with you in Christ. He gives us four verbs here, all of which, or a number of which, have a kind of a commercial overtone, a business overtone to them. He says here that we have been established, and he uses a term which is something of a, a security. This is a guarantee. God has confirmed you. He has affirmed that you are in Christ. God has taken you, Christian believer, and he has put you in an irreversible relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been connected in a union with Christ that God has established, that God has given you the very faith to connect you with Christ, and he will strengthen that faith until the very end. And so if you, if you feel at times that you're a half a believer, you can still rejoice because God it is that has established you and connected you unreversibly with Christ. Look at the second thing he says there. He says that God has anointed you. He has anointed you. He has, he has connected you with the Christos and Christized you. He's playing, this is a word play here. You are anointed by being connected to the anointing one. When we think of anointing, we're not surprised that we see a, a reference in 22 to the Holy Spirit. The other three times that this verb is used in the, in the New Testament speaks about Christ being anointed with the Holy Spirit, as in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God has anointed you and has given you a spiritual life and has given you tasks that he has appointed you to carry out in his service in this life. Perhaps there's a reference here. There's some, perhaps an overtone of that you, that you in this life and the life to come have a prophetic, have a priestly, you have a kingly uh, duty in the service of God uh, in this way and in that. Perhaps there's a, a reference that you are a son of oil, even as we see the image in Zechariah chapter four, verse 14, like Zerubbabel, like Joshua that God has promised that you, even as they who are the sons of oil, where these golden tubes make a continual flow of oil, that you will have a continual supply of the anointing of God to sustain you in the Christian life as you serve him in uh, all your days. To be a Christian and to be connected with the anointed one, the Messiah, is to be uh, anointed ourselves. And then look in verse uh, 22 for a third uh, verb here that we read that he has sealed you. He has sealed you. This is another property term. In Eritrea and in Ethiopia, it's a custom that uh, some of the, the, the women have a tattoo of a cross put on their forehead when they're little. And you may like that idea, you may not like that idea, but it certainly sets them apart that they're not Muslims. They, these are Christian children, right? 
And the same imagery is used of you in Ezekiel and in Revelation, that you have the inking of God on your forehead and you are uh, indisputably and irrevocably set apart to God. When baptism came on you, you were identified with Christ just as clearly as the cows were identified with a particular ranch when the brand was put on them. You have a brand on you that will never come off and you are unmistakably guaranteed and sealed to be Christ. Just as with a special letter, it has a seal on it to show that it's not been tampered with, so it is with you, that you are, inviolable, you are inviolably his possession, and you're guaranteed to be safe and secure from all alarms until the very last day. And on top of these assurances, one, two, three, four, he gives us a final assurance then. He says that he has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That the Holy Spirit has been for you a down payment, the beginnings of the blessings that are yet to come to you. You have been given the first installment of heaven and the joys that you are to experience in fullness around the corner even now. The peace of conscience that you enjoy. The joy in the Holy Ghost, the consolations and the comforts that you experience in this life as a Christian is a down payment. It's the beginning of the great stuff to come. When someone buys your house, what do they give you? Maybe they give you $5,000. That's a lot of money. But it's just the beginning. When you come to the closing table, then they give you the full price for the house. huh? And that's the day when you walk away with a big check. And so it is for you. You get the $5,000 now. Lots of things to enjoy about being a Christian. But the greatest things are yet to come. As, as uh, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 23, he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So as we go through the sufferings of this life, and we have plenty of those sufferings even as the academic pressures pile on us here uh, in, in, at, at seminary, we experience uh, something of the brokenness of this world. We have this longing in us that the Spirit himself produces for the good things which are just around the corner for us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared for us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, brothers and sisters, let me draw your attention in conclusion to this little axiom that Paul uses to grab our attention in verse 18. He says what about God when he swears? As God is faithful. As God is faithful. For him, there was no doubt about that, that God is faithful. But, of course, that's precisely the point of temptation for you and me. Will you believe that God is faithful? Will you trust that God is faithful when, the, when, when it's easier to, to doubt, when it's easier to, to go for your own security, to take the shortcut? Will you believe as you go through weeping during this week that the dryness of tears really is around the corner for you? Or will you seek your own consolations in shortcuts and sins? When you are facing uh, the, the car repair bill and you're not sure, when you look at the checkbook and you look at the bill, you're not sure how those things will come together, will you believe that God is faithful? That you have an inheritance which is unspeakably vast that will put the, the wealth of all of Southern California to, 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 to look like nothing when you inherited it? 
Will you believe that God is faithful? And will you choose the Christian path? Will you choose the path, the narrow path? Will you choose the path of sanctification? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7:11. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And Peter adds his word as he says, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Brothers and sisters, will you believe that God is faithful? Join me in a word of prayer. Then I'd like for us in just a moment then, if Jonathan will come, I'd like us to finish with the singing of the doxology on 732. Jonathan, if you come, let's pray briefly. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this one, that you have fulfilled all your promises in him, and you have given us such riches, such securities, such joys in him. Oh Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Strengthen us in our faith that we might uh, go from, from grace to grace, a second grace and a third grace, and all through this life to a final grace. Oh Lord, strengthen us, we pray. All the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the praise be yours now and always. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.